Well, I'd like to begin this morning with an illustration that at first may seem a little bit out of place, both seasonally and theologically. It's an illustration about Santa Claus. In fact, I'd like to tell you my favorite Santa Claus story. Modern society, of course, has turned Santa Claus into a farce, a jolly, bearded Scandinavian pulled through the night sky by a team of magic caribou. But church history provides a very different picture. The fourth century pastor, Nicholas of Myra, ministered in modern-day Turkey. He was known for his generosity, which is part of the reason that there were legends about his gift-giving. And eventually, the Roman Catholic Church canonized him as a saint, and he became known as Saint Nicholas, and he was the patron saint of Dutch sailors, who called him Sinterklaas, and that's how it came into English as Santa Claus. But my favorite story about Nicholas of Myra, the pastor, not the cartoonish caricature, involves his actions at the Council of Nicaea. Roughly 17 centuries ago in the year 325, church leaders from around the Roman Empire gathered in Nicaea, to respond to the heretical teachings of a man named Arius. Arius was an elder from the church in Alexandria, Egypt, and he taught that the Son of God was a created being. Arius denied the eternality of the Lord Jesus, and because he is not eternal, Arius claimed, he is not equal to the Father and therefore, in fact, is of a different substance or essence from the Father. In short, Arius denied the deity of Christ. The blasphemy of Arius sent shockwaves throughout the Roman world, and so in the year 325, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea to deal with the controversy. More than 300 bishops attended the council. They traveled to Nicaea with their presbyters and deacons in tow. I know it was different, but I kind of picture it like a shepherd's conference. Hundreds of senior pastors, hundreds of elders, hundreds of deacons. And they came to Nicaea to address a core theological question. Is the Lord Jesus co-eternal co-equal and co-essential with the Father. Is Jesus God? This is where Nicholas enters the story because he was there at the council of Nicaea. And when Nicholas heard Arius brashly deny the deity of Christ, he was overcome with righteous indignation. And according to the story, Nicholas stood to his feet in the middle of the proceedings and he approached Arius in front of everyone there and he faced him and in response to his blasphemy, Santa Claus smacked him in the face. Nicholas actually got in quite a bit of trouble for doing that because Constantine was not about to let his council turn into a riot. 
And while we would, of course, not condone physical violence, you have to admit that's quite a story. The real Santa Claus was not a competitor to Christ. He was a worshiper of Christ. And he rightly understood that the Son of God is no mere creature. He is God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the creator of all things. And when he heard the name of the Lord so shamefully blasphemed, Nicholas did not simply put coal in Arius's stocking. No, he was moved to defend the glory of his Savior no matter the consequence. Nicholas of Myra had clarity about the deity of Christ, and it moved him to action. Clarity on Christ, and specifically clarity on the deity of Christ is our theme for this morning. Clarity on the person, the glorious person of God the Son. And some might wonder if a message on that theme is really necessary, especially at a conference like this, and I would contend that it is especially since a right understanding of the person and work of the Lord Jesus is essential to the Christian faith. Sadly, there are many like Arius today who persist in the error of rejecting the cardinal doctrine of the deity of Christ. And we might think immediately of religious groups like Muslims or Unitarians or Jehovah's Witnesses, each of whom claim some level of belief in Jesus, and yet all of whom deny that Jesus is God. But there are also examples, heartbreaking examples, that hit closer to home. I know of friends in pastoral ministry who have had to discipline elders out of their church at great personal cost because there were elders who had denied this doctrine. I know of Bible professors, even at theologically conservative institutions, who have had to be dismissed because they began to question and undermine the deity of Christ. And I am aware of popular pastors and authors whose names you would all recognize, who have affirmed this doctrine in both their sermons and their books, only later to walk away and abandon it all in unbelief. These examples serve as a warning to us. Brothers, let us not approach a subject as sublime as the majestic and glorious person of Christ with an air of familiarity or indifference, lest we find ourselves profaning the profound. To gain clarity about Christ, to see him through a biblical lens is to become more like him through the power of his spirit who reveals him to us and who molds us into his image. It is to behold him with greater focus as we fix our eyes on him with joy and bow our hearts before him in worship. And as we begin to dig into this glorious theme this morning, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. It'll take us a little bit to get here this morning, 
but we will be looking at Matthew 3 in a few moments. There are, of course, many places in Scripture we could go to discover and to defend the doctrine of the deity of Christ. After all, we affirm this doctrine not because of some 4th century church council, but because this truth is clearly revealed in the word of Christ by the Spirit of Christ. By way of an introductory overview, let me just quickly highlight 10 passages that affirm the deity of Christ. Isaiah 9.6 is that great prophecy about the coming Messiah, which explains that his name will be Mighty God, a clear reference to his deity seven centuries before he arrived in Bethlehem. In the New Testament, Matthew 1.23 confirms that the Messiah will be called Emmanuel, whose name means God with us. The baby in the manger is God in human flesh. The familiar words of John 1.1 reinforce this truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in John 20, verse 28, we hear the words of Thomas in the upper room as he beholds the resurrected Christ and exclaims, my Lord and my God. In Acts 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul encourages the Ephesian elders to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The unmistakable import of Paul's statement is that the one who redeemed his church on the cross was none other than God in human flesh. Colossians 2.9 reiterates this point when it says of Jesus that in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Titus 2.13, speaking of Jesus' return, Paul notes that believers are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And of course, you men know this, but grammatically, both of those titles, God and Savior, must refer to Christ. That same title, God and Savior, is also applied to Jesus by Peter in 2 Peter 1.1. Hebrews 1.3 is explicit when it states that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And for any who maybe missed that point, the author of Hebrews continues in verse 8 of chapter 1 by noting that the Father himself says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. One final example the 10th in my list here comes from 1 John 5.20. There the apostle John concludes his first epistle by saying of the Lord Jesus, this is the true God and eternal life. And we could, of course, add many other passages to this list, but those are sufficient to make the point that the New Testament writers fully embrace the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And in doing this, they were simply echoing what Jesus claimed for himself. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly affirmed his deity. For example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus asserted divine authority over the Sabbath. In many other passages, he demonstrated divine authority over nature, over disease, over demons, even over the eternal destinies of people. In John 14, 13 and 14, he claims the ability to answer prayer, which is something only God can do. In Matthew 
14 verse 33, he claims the right to receive worship, which is something only God can do. In Mark chapter 2, he claims the authority to forgive sins, which even the Pharisees recognize only God can do. Throughout his ministry, he calls himself the Son of Man, a title with divine implications hearkening back to Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. He also calls himself the Son of God, a title which his Jewish hearers immediately understood to be a claim of equality with God. In fact, in John 5, 18, it says that the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John 8, 38, excuse me, John 8, 58, Jesus calls himself, I am, thereby declaring himself to be eternal, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus claims that God's angels are his angels. In Matthew 24, that God's elect are his elect. In John 17, verse 5, he claims to have shared the Father's eternal glory. And in John 14, 9 and 10, he asserts his own absolute unity with the Father such that he can tell his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's no wonder that the rest of the New Testament affirms that Jesus is God because the biblical writers are simply reiterating the very claims that Jesus makes for himself. And given the mountain of biblical evidence, and we just quickly ran through about two dozen references, it's difficult to imagine how anyone could deny something that is so apparent on the pages of Scripture and yet, as we know, the heart of unbelief suppresses the truth and unrighteousness in spite of overwhelming evidence. Now, as we continue to focus on the theme of the deity of Christ this morning, I, I want to highlight one specific line of biblical evidence that perhaps you've never noticed before. It is a truth that was brought to my attention just a, a couple of years ago, and I've continue to dig into it, and my heart has been greatly blessed as a result, and I hope that your hearts will be blessed as well. As you know, the personal covenant-keeping name of God is Yahweh, or Jehovah. That name occurs more than 6,000 times in the Old Testament, with one of the most well-known occurrences found in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and in that passage, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, then you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. When God revealed his personal name to Moses, his covenant-keeping name, that name was and is Yahweh. But of course, if you look through your Old Testaments, you won't see the word Yahweh there. And that's because most English versions translate the name Yahweh using the name Lord with all of the letters capitalized. Now, I know you know this, 
But when you see the word Lord, capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, it's translating the Hebrew title Adonai, which means master. But if you see the word Lord with all capital letters, it is translating the name Yahweh, which is the personal covenant-keeping name of God. Why do English translations do this? Well, the primary reason historically is that they are following the lead of the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. Out of their respect for the name Yahweh, wanting to make sure they did not accidentally make or take the name of the Lord in vain, the Jewish people generally replaced the name Yahweh with the name Adonai. In Greek, the word for Lord or master is kurios, And so when the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the translators used the word kurios for both Adonai and Yahweh. So in both the Greek Septuagint and in your modern English translations, you will find the word Lord in English or kurios in Greek used in place of the name Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. Well, as a result of that translation choice, we can sometimes miss the full significance of what we are reading when we come to a verse where the name Yahweh appears in the text, because all we see there is the title or the name Lord. But if we dig a little deeper into the text, we will be richly rewarded. Because here's the thing, and this is the big idea of my message this morning. There are places in the New Testament where the author quotes an Old Testament passage about Yahweh, and the New Testament author takes that passage and he applies it directly to Jesus. Say that one more time. There are places in the New Testament where a New Testament author takes an Old Testament passage about Yahweh and he applies that name from the Old Testament to Jesus. In other words, in affirming that Jesus is God, the New Testament writers not only use the Greek word theos for God, they also cite passages where the name Yahweh is used, translated as kurios in Greek and ascribe those passages and that name to Jesus. Well, this is a wonderful truth, especially in light of the errors of groups like Jehovah's Witnesses who put a wall of division between Jehovah and Jesus. The New Testament does the opposite. Jesus is Jehovah. In the same way that he is God, very God, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, co-eternal, co-essential, co-equal with the Father, And so just as we might say that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, so we might also say that the Father is Yahweh and the Son is Yahweh and the Spirit is Yahweh. This is the glorious truth of the Trinity. Yahweh is the name of the triune God. This morning then, we are going to look at four places in the New Testament where an Old Testament passage about Yahweh is quoted and then directly applied to Jesus. There are other passages where this affirmation is implicit, 
But the four passages we will consider this morning are explicit in declaring this truth. They are the four most explicit in making this point. Consequently, they provide another compelling witness to the deity of Christ. And I'll acknowledge up front that this is going to take a little bit of work on your part because we'll be turning to a few different places. Probably will borrow Abner's term from yesterday that this is a Lerman part lecture, part sermon. So I do hope you've had your coffee. But I am convinced that the investment of time and energy will be worth it because there is no subject more glorious than the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the object of our study from the New Testament and the Old Testament this morning. So let's look at these four places in the New Testament where an Old Testament passage about Yahweh is directly applied to Jesus. And in these places, we'll see the deity of Christ highlighted with reference to four different aspects of his person and work. And the first of these four passages is in Matthew chapter 3. Here in Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus is declared to be Yahweh in reference to his arrival as the promised Messiah. Or to say it another way, Matthew chapter 3 shows us that the coming Messiah is Yahweh. The coming Messiah is Yahweh. Matthew chapter 3 describes the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. The chapter opens there in verse 1 with these words. Now in the days of John the Baptist, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of the Jordan saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse three, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. And he applies that Old Testament text to the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, all four gospel writers apply this text to John the Baptist. And if we were to keep reading in Matthew chapter three, we would discover that John understood that he was not the Messiah, but rather that he was the one called to prepare the way for the Messiah. But I want you to notice something there in verse three. The word Lord is of particular significance for our study this morning because again, verse three is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse three. And in Isaiah 40, the word for Lord is Yahweh. This is quite a thing to consider. After 400 years of silence in Israel with no prophet since Malachi, there appears in the Judean wilderness this prophetic figure of John the Baptist. He lives in the desert, dresses in goatskins, eats locusts for lunch. And as he preaches against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the people want to know who he is, and they ask him who he is. And according to John 1, verse 23, John himself answers them by citing Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of Yahweh. 
And of course, because he's quoting from a well-known text, his audience would have recognized that connection immediately. As the forerunner to the Messiah, John was called to make straight the way for the Lord. What an amazing statement for Matthew and the other gospel writers to make about not only John the Baptist, but about the one to whom John the Baptist pointed, the one who is coming, the one for whom John was called to prepare the way. This is none other than the arrival of Yahweh himself. And the final line of verse three, make his path straight, is actually a slight variation from the Septuagint's rendering of Isaiah 40, verse three. The original says, make the paths of our God straight. So the pronoun his in Matthew three is a reference to God. Again, affirming the deity of the Messiah who is to come. How incredible it is to consider the implications of this truth. In the Old Testament, Yahweh not only promises to send the Messiah, the one who will defeat Satan and deliver sinners, but Yahweh himself fulfills that promise by coming to earth to pay his own penalty and satisfy his own standard. God the Son, the eternal second member of the Trinity, takes on flesh and is born in a manger and he chooses the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And he is called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And he sends out his forerunner, John the Baptist, as a voice crying in the wilderness, make ready the way for Yahweh. Yahweh, the Messiah. This glorious reality that God became man has captured the hearts and minds of many throughout church history. I love what the church father Augustine said about this doctrinal truth. He wrote, the word of the father by whom all time was created was made flesh and was born in time for us. He without whose divine permission no day completes its course selected one day for his birth. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be weaned as an infant, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline, might be scourged with whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, that he, the life, might die. The Son of God became the Son of Man. It was for this purpose to save that our Messiah had to come. And his name was Jesus, Yahweh saves. And it had to be, it had to be him. Because who could pay the infinite debt of sin that was owed to God except for God himself? And so at the outset of Jesus's ministry, we are reminded by John the Baptist that the Messiah who is coming is none other than Jehovah himself. The coming 
Messiah is Yahweh. Well, we come then to a second passage. A second passage in the New Testament where the author uses an Old Testament text about Yahweh and applies it directly to Jesus. And that passage is Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. So please turn there with me and we will look specifically at verses 9 to 13. This is a very familiar passage of scripture. And here in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13, we see another aspect of the work of Christ that is emphasized. Jesus is declared to be Yahweh in reference to his work as the risen Savior. Or we might say it this way, that the conquering Savior, the one who conquers sin and death and hell at the cross, and rises victorious from the grave, the conquering Savior is Yahweh. Look with me at Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For, verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And of course, in this well-known passage, we have a clarion call to embrace the risen Christ in saving faith, to confess him as Lord, because all who call on him will be forgiven and justified and saved eternally. As we noted earlier, the word Lord used throughout this section is the Greek word kurios, And the word kurios can simply mean master, and Jesus, of course, is our heavenly master. But Paul has more in view in this passage than just that. Notice the parallels between verse 9 and verse 13. In verse 9, the one who confesses Jesus as Lord will be saved. In verse 13, the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in the context, Paul is speaking about the same Lord in verse 9 as he's describing in verse 13. This is the one Lord over all whom he mentions in verse 12. But again, you'll notice in verse 13 that Paul is quoting from an Old Testament text. This is from Joel 2.32. And in Joel 2.32, the word translated Lord is Yahweh. In this context, then, Paul is using the word Lord against that Old Testament backdrop, which means if we look back at verse 9, Paul is telling his readers, in essence, if you confess Jesus as Yahweh and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Now, to be clear, this in no way diminishes the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, it intensifies it. Jesus Christ is our master, our Lord, our King, our sovereign, our God. Conversely, we are his slaves, his servants, his subjects, his vassals, his very possession. To confess him as Lord is not merely to let certain words pass through your lips. It is to speak those words as a declaration of allegiance to him. Having repented from sin 
and turned to him and having embraced him as the risen savior who conquered death and sin for us. This early Christian confession there in verse nine stood in stark contrast to the common declaration of Roman pagans that Caesar is Lord, which was in keeping with their view that Caesar himself was a divine figure. Over against that, Paul says, no, no, we do not affirm the divinity of the Caesars. Rather, as Christians, we affirm the deity and sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. So to confess Jesus as Lord is to submit to his absolute authority in everything, not only because he is our heavenly master, but because he is God. How interesting to consider this text in light of groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, because the implications of this verse are clear. Unless you confess Jesus as Jehovah, you cannot be saved. So to deny that Jesus is Lord in the full sense that Paul intends here in this passage is to deny the truth about who Jesus truly is. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we learn that it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone can genuinely and sincerely confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is because the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of regeneration in the heart, bringing life to dead hearts and sight to blind eyes. The conquering Savior, the risen Lord, victorious over sin and death and hell is Yahweh, and only those who embrace him in saving faith will be saved. So in Matthew chapter 3, the coming Messiah is Yahweh. In Romans chapter 10, the conquering Savior is Yahweh. Brings us to a third New Testament passage to consider this morning. Another place where a New Testament author uses an Old Testament passage about Yahweh and directly applies it to Jesus. If you could turn five books to your right to the book of Philippians, chapter two, Philippians chapter two, here we have another very well-known text. Philippians chapter two, verses nine to 11. And here in this passage, we find another specific aspect of the person and work of Christ highlighted. Here, the New Testament declares that Jesus is Yahweh with reference to his exaltation as the ascended Lord. Or we might say it this way, the cosmic, meaning universal, the cosmic king is Yahweh. The ascended Lord is Yahweh. After describing the humiliation of Christ that God the Son took on flesh and became a man and then suffered to the point of death on the cross, Paul writes in verse 9 of Philippians 2, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here Paul depicts the exaltation of Christ in vivid terms, noting that God the Father has bestowed on his son the name which is above every name. And what name is that? Verse 11 answers the question, the name is Lord. 
And what does Paul intend by his use of kurios here in Philippians chapter two? Well, to answer that, we have to look back at the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 45, verses 18 to 25. Listen as I read some from Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is none else. Verse 21 of Isaiah 45, who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in all righteousness and will not turn back, Isaiah 45, 23, that to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And they will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. And men will come to me and all who were angry at him will be put to shame In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. This is amazing. In Isaiah 45, 23 and 24, it is Yahweh who says, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is after multiple times in the passage saying, there is no one else besides me. And he says, they will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. And in Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. These are amazing words. And in Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul is fully aware of that context. In Isaiah 45, as he quotes from verse 23 in verse 11 of Philippians two, and he applies that to Jesus. It is Jesus to whom every knee will bow. It is Jesus about whom every tongue will confess. And what do they confess? They confess that he is Lord, which in the light of the context of Isaiah 45 can only mean that they will confess that he is Yahweh. In Isaiah 45, the content of that confession is that righteousness and strength and justification and salvation are found only in Jehovah. There is no savior except for him, and at his name, every knee will bow. Now, lest there be any confusion, Paul explains that the exaltation of Jesus is to the glory of God the Father, because when one person of the Godhead is honored, each member of the Trinity is also honored, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, it is impossible to make sense of this text apart from the doctrine of the Trinity, because Isaiah 45 is unmistakably clear that there is no other God besides Yahweh, no other Savior besides him, no other Lord who receives homage and worship, no other before whom every knee bows and every tongue confesses. But in Philippians 2, both the person of the Father and the person of the Son are highlighted. And it is the Son who receives the homage from bowing knees and confessing lips, even though the Father is also glorified as a result. 
And though he's not mentioned in these specific verses, the person of the Holy Spirit, of course, is also in the context, Philippians 2.1, Philippians 3.3. And so we come face to face with the glorious reality of the Trinity, that there is only one God, and yet there are three persons within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is why Isaiah 45 can emphasize Yahweh's absolute exclusivity while Philippians 2 highlights the respective roles of the Father and the Son. In the end, Paul's use of Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2 leads to only one possible conclusion. And that conclusion, that conclusion is that Jesus is Yahweh, just as the Father is Yahweh and the Spirit is Yahweh. He is the Son of God, God the Son, God very God. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And they will confess that he is Lord. Kind of wish we could just have Bob come up and sing, but my notes tell me we have another passage to look at. So we've looked at three passages so far where the New Testament takes an Old Testament passage about Yahweh and applies it directly to Jesus. There is a fourth explicit passage. Matthew 3, we saw that the coming Messiah is Yahweh. In Romans 10, the conquering Savior is Yahweh. In Philippians 2, the cosmic king is Yahweh. Final passage is in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you could turn one more time to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll look at verses 13 to 15. And here Peter declares that Jesus is Yahweh in reference to his authority as Lord of our hearts. Or we might say it this way, that our commander-in-chief is Yahweh. Our commander-in-chief is Yahweh. Now, a submission to the authority of God the Son is implied in the passages we've already looked at. After all, John the Baptist insisted that only those who repented would be ready for the coming Messiah. And in Romans 10, to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess your allegiance to him. And in Philippians 2, the idea that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is nothing less than a universal acknowledgement of his authority. But in this passage, in 1 Peter chapter 3, the implications become intensely personal. Writing to a group of believers on the brink of persecution, Peter writes, Who is there to harm you? 1 Peter 3.13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, it's usually not obvious in English translations, but the last part of verse 14 and also the first phrase of verse 15 here in 1 Peter chapter 3 are actually a citation 
from the Old Testament. Peter is taking these words from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And listen as I read an English translation of the Septuagint text for Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Do not be frightened with fear, neither be troubled. Sanctify the Lord himself, and he himself will be your fear. Did you catch that? The first words of Isaiah 8.13 are, sanctify the Lord himself. And of course, this isn't going to be a surprise at this point, but if we were to look at the Hebrew text, we would find that the word Lord in Isaiah 8.13 is Yahweh. And that means that when Peter quotes from Isaiah 8, 12, and 13 and applies those verses to Christ, he is affirming that Jesus is Yahweh. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 15 is explicit. Sanctify or treat as holy. Sanctify Jesus as Yahweh in your heart. Treat him as holy. Set him apart in your thinking. And in this context, Fear him rather than fearing the hostile world around you. In the context of Isaiah 8, the Lord's encouragement to his people is, do not fear men, but rather fear me. I am your fear, for I am Yahweh. And here in 1 Peter 3, Peter makes a parallel point. In the face of pending persecution, his admonition to these readers, do not fear men, instead Fear your Messiah, who is Yahweh. The fruit of that, Peter goes on to explain, is that you will be emboldened to give a defense for the hope of the gospel, and you can do so with gentleness and with patience, even in the face of severe hostility. I find this to be a very convicting application of this doctrinal truth to my own heart, and I think it is an appropriate practical implication of the text for a group of pastors and church leaders to consider that when we are tempted to fear men rather than God, we ought to heed Peter's challenge to set apart as holy Christ who is Yahweh and to fear him rather than than men. How could the readers of this letter stand firm in the face of persecution by setting Christ apart in their hearts, choosing to revere him rather than to fear men? And the same is true for us. We must fear God rather than men. Well, there is, of course, much more that could be said about this text, but in keeping with our primary goal this morning, We will content ourselves with that. In these verses, Peter quotes from Isaiah 8 to affirm that our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Yahweh, and therefore we are to set him apart and reverence him as holy in our hearts. Well, this morning has been a bit of a journey through a lot of different texts. And I considered even beforehand with some fear and trembling the reality of a topical message at a shepherd's conference. But this morning we have considered four New Testament texts, which on the surface may not seem directly related. 
Yet they are the four clearest examples in the New Testament of a biblical author taking an Old Testament text about Yahweh and applying that text directly and explicitly to Jesus. And considered from that perspective, they are not random at all. Together they provide yet another compelling witness to the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Matthew 3 uses the words of Isaiah 40 to show us that the coming Messiah is Yahweh. And Romans 10 uses the words of Joel 2 to declare that the conquering Savior is Yahweh. And Philippians 2 uses the words of Isaiah 45 to exclaim that the cosmic king is Yahweh. And 1 Peter 3 uses Isaiah 8 to remind us that our commander-in-chief is Yahweh. What a glorious truth. The New Testament declares Jesus to be Yahweh, to be Jehovah, God, very God, co-eternal, co-equal, co-essential with the Father. And so it's not surprising that the New Testament writers gladly ascribe to Jesus the honor and glory and worship reserved for Yahweh alone. So I was reflecting on these truths I remembered a time as a kid growing up when some Jehovah's Witnesses came to our front door. I was probably 10 or 11 years old at the time. And my dad, some of you know my dad because he worked here at the Master Seminary for many years. My dad answered the door and there was a man and a woman and a young boy about my age who were standing there on our front porch and inviting us to their local kingdom hall. And I was in the the living room watching this all go down with great intensity and suspense in my own heart. My dad spoke briefly with uh, two adults and then he asked them if he could say something to the young man who was standing there. And if you know my dad, he is honestly one of the most gracious people you will ever meet. Well, the man and the woman commented, or excuse me, consented to my dad's request to say something to this young boy. Again, he was about my age, and my dad looked at him, and he asked him, son, do you know what the Bible says about these people who are standing here with you? And... The young man kind of stood there quietly. I think he maybe shook his head a little bit. And then my dad said words I will never forget. He said, the Bible says that it would be better that a millstone were hung around their necks and they were drowned in the ocean than that they would lead a little one like you astray. Well, they scurried down the sidewalk pretty quick (laughs) after that. But there were, there were two young men who were listening to that conversation, one who was hastily retreating and another who was sitting on the living room sofa with his jaw on the floor. <laughs> and I have never forgotten those words. And I, I share that story to punctuate the fact that the deity of Christ is not some secondary doctrine. This is not some incidental, arbitrary doctrine on which we can just agree to disagree. 
This is central to the Christian faith. It is essential to the gospel. It's a defining mark of biblical orthodoxy. It is the theme of heaven's song. But it is not enough to merely give lip service to this glorious truth. It is not sufficient to know it intellectually if we are not putting it into practice in our lives, in our homes, in our ministries. It is one thing to affirm with your mind and with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh. It is quite another to embrace that truth with your heart and your soul and your strength. And as Peter reminded us in 1 Peter 3.15, this is a doctrine that has practical import for our walk, our words, and our worship. When we sanctify Christ as Yahweh, it motivates our walk of obedience as we faithfully submit ourselves to his lordship rather than succumbing to the fears and idols of the world. When we sanctify Christ as Yahweh, it emboldens our words as we courageously give a defense, an answer for the hope that is in us to anyone who asks, no matter the consequence. And when we sanctify Christ as Yahweh, it propels our worship because we are reverencing him for who he truly is. Brothers, may this truth grip our hearts, our lips, our lives as we daily bend the knee in worship to the one before whom every knee will one day bow. And as we affirm our love and allegiance to the one about whom every tongue will one day confess, he is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the reality of this truth. And even hearing that response, I know, Lord, that that is an affirmation of hearts that are overwhelmed with the reality of this truth, which is to see you honored and worshiped and adored and exalted for who you are, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May the truth of our lips be reflected in the way we live. And may we not just affirm this truth from your word without putting it into practice in our walk. We look forward to the day when for all of eternity, we will sing praises to the King, the Son of God who saved us, God the Son, who is glorious, Yahweh the exalted, may his name be praised forever.